0: NWP Radio. You're listening to NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. NWP. NWP
1: Radio. Hello, everyone. My name is Tanya Baker, and I'm the Director of National Programs at the National Writing Project. And tonight, it is my honor and privilege to welcome and host Willie Edward Taylor Carver Jr. I am a big fan of Brett Goldstein who plays Roy Kent on Ted Lasso and who I consider a sort of nexus of goodness in the world and he having the opportunity to talk to Willie Carver brings to mind Brett Goldstein. If you are or are not a Brett Goldstein fan you might know that he has a podcast called Films to be Buried With and in that podcast he does these introductions of his guests that I love, which are long lists of everything that person is. And I, as I got to know Willie a little bit, getting ready for this conversation. I felt like he deserved that kind of introduction. So in my best Brett Goldstein manner, I want to introduce you to Willie Edward Taylor Carver Jr. He is a teacher, a Kentucky Teacher of the Year, a poet, an activist, a gay Appalachian, a French speaker, a husband, a lover, a son, an uncle, a grandson, and more. And he's going to tell us, he's going to share his work and his story with us. And I'm so excited to get started. Welcome, Willie. We're so glad you're here.
2: Thank you, Tanya. I'm so excited to be here. I've been a fan of the National Writing Project through the Moorhead Writing Project for a decade and a half. So it's a absolute honor
1: we are so excited to have you here i like to give guests having offered my introduction i always like to allow guests to tell us something that we might not know about them so i love for you to start by telling everyone here something about yourself that i've left out of your introduction or if that's too open i would say tell us something that everyone who already knows you knows that you love
2: knows that i love canada and this the big gay Appalachian who's always talking about Appalachia. I loved French, spoke French well, lived in France for a bit. I actually lived in the northern part of France, which is a bit impoverished. They have strong regional accents that get mocked. They used to be coal miners, but they're not anymore. So it was a natural fit for me. But the first time I heard French from Quebec, I was like this, these diphthongs, this colorful way of of using French in a fearless way that eschews all standard grammar absolutely brings me joy.
1: Excellent. Thank you, Willie. We're so glad you're here. And I really want to delve in to a little talk about your history as a teacher and where it's led you to. And we want to hear and enjoy your poetry. If you're ready, we'll just jump right in. Willie, your book, Gay Poems for Red State opens with what I found a sort of compelling and difficult story about the principal who you first worked with, brought to his office and asked you if it was true that you planned to teach at his school as an openly gay man, and then told you, no one will protect you, including me. You write, the warning was in some ways a kindness. I feel like this sets the scene for what's to follow both in your book and in your life. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience and what happened next?
2: I would love to. The, the, the interesting thing about the way Kentucky works is that at the time, a person had to have all of their administrators sign in order for them to get a teaching license. So I realized I have no other choice to have a teaching license unless I go back into the closet. And it was the first time I had been in the closet since I was a teenager, frankly. But on the other hand, the principal spoke truth, right? An ugly truth that they were willing to admit about themselves. So I think about that and how at the end of the day, there are many worse things they could have done. So it takes some courage to be honest about who you are as a human being. And that person admitted their lack of courage. So that ultimately led me to Vermont, which is right near Canada, which is part of why we went up there. And it was a healing time for a full two years. My husband and I lived in a place where we were afforded dignity as LGBTQ people, where we could just walk down the street and be ourselves. And we had always done that, but we had done it with a lot of trepidation And with so much courage that it was impossible to be authentic because you realized I'm now symbolic anytime you were doing anything. So it was nice for a couple of years just to be a human being. And I liked having that experience. But we ultimately came back.
1: You came back and you spent the next decade teaching this community that you had left. And during that time, your students won awards in French and English. You were named the Kentucky Teacher of the Year. And then you make a difficult decision to leave the classroom. Can you tell us a little bit about how and why you ended up leaving the classroom?
2: Yes. So I could detail the specific homophobia, but I think anything that you guess is happening with a gay teacher in a rural Southern school. It was that. Basically that the the administration shifted multiple times, but the consistent administration was pretty afraid of me in terms of what the community might think. I don't think necessarily that everyone hated me for being you, but they lacked conviction and they lacked courage as human beings. And so that meant having no problem curtailing my rights that looked like what might seem like little things, but trips to the principal's office. I used to think going to the principal's office would be something that once I became an adult, I didn't have to do. (laughs) Still went, and those were over anything and everything, constant concerns about quizzes that were literally not actual concerns. And in the last, couple of years, what I was always able to do is meet people where they were, convince them that they were being illogical or that they were acting in ways contrary to the law and have them agree that yes, they should just leave me alone. The last couple of years, that that shifted dramatically. For a good example, my LGBTQ students were depressed. We use Remind as an app and I would get these messages basically with them saying goodbye because they were suicidal. We would have to do wellness checks and they wanted to do a survey, a simple little survey about school climate. So I was like, okay, if we're going to do this, let's do it legitimately and well. So we met with some researchers at the University of Kentucky who talked to us about how to make sure that we were approaching the survey in legitimate ways and professional ways and scientific ways. We met with the Kentucky Student Voice Team, which is the largest team that does this sort of work in Kentucky. They get 50,000 responses. They talked us through ways to do this. And then the school banned it because it specifically used the words gay and trans. And I said to my administrators, this is illegal. You have a forum. This is an optional survey that's being given to students in in classrooms. My students also presented to the entire English department the survey and why it was necessary. And the entire department agreed that they would share this as an option for other students. And I said, this is a limited open forum issue. You have a limited open forum. Other people have had access to it. You can't ban it simply because it's gay. And that was the first time that they said, we're banning it anyway. And I started to realize, okay, so now we live in a different country where people are brave enough to take away the basic civil rights of kids. That feeling was supplemented by people in my community who began making attacks. They were absolutely buttressed by national groups, and I became... The first case, at least around here, or one of the first big cases of people using the groomer narrative, they started suggesting that I was somehow being inappropriate because I was a gay man. Um, absolutely no evidence or reason for stating these things. It got really scary when they started posting pictures of my students online. They were posting pictures of them at work, posting pictures saying that my students themselves, my former students were dragged using a French word were somehow being inappropriate with younger students. The police had to get involved with one of those students and have them leave because there was a significant threat against that student. During all of this, I could not get the school district to even speak to what was happening. I couldn't get them to say something nice about my students. That's what I really thought would have Mm -hmm. been an easy way. Let's talk about this group that exists, this group called Open Life that cleans parks for free that raises money for mental health awareness, that raises money for natural disasters. But instead, they chose absolute and utter silence, including not speaking to the actual students themselves. Mm -hmm. Those were the breaking points. The Mm -hmm. final, there was only one other queer person who worked in my department. She made a TikTok that had one of those rap songs with a curse word in it, and they suspended her for two weeks. And she and I both... Believed that they were trying to fire her for a very long time, and I just had this realization: I can't go back into this environment. I've been a successful, happy presence for these students. Our classroom has been a space where they feel brave to be themselves, and I don't want, if I'm one of the limited experiences that they have, with of an adult who is LGBTQ, for them to see someone who is being constantly harassed and broken.
1: Willie, that takes us. To where we are now and that's a terrible hard story but here you are as a huge presence in the world i was having dinner with a friend who's a college professor in divinity school and i was telling him i was getting ready for this interview and he goes hey i saw that guy last week and this keeps been happening to me in the month getting ready for this interview i know you're an extraordinarily busy writer activist speaker and teacher. And I couldn't help thinking about how you are everywhere right now. Each time I read the sentence, which is a recurring motif in your book, the truth will stand when the world's on fire. And I feel for some of us the world as feeling a little bit on fire and here you are standing. So I wonder if you want to say anything about that sentence, where it comes from, who in your life in the world says that, what does it mean, and what does it mean to you, especially right now?
2: My mom came to spend the week with us last week, and I just listened as she spoke, as I always do, because Appalachians just, they use the most beautiful language. I don't even remember what I had said, but she said, oh, that's such a great expression. You always have these funny expressions when you, like, write all these down and I go, these aren't expressions. These are just, <laughs> this is just how we talk. But that one happens to be an expression. So my mom said it four or five times over the course of just a couple of days. It is not hopeful, it is not hopeless. It is simply a statement that acknowledges what will be, but it adds a depth to it. My grandmother would always say it when there was a problem her sons ended up in a lot of problems. And she would always use that expression. You use that expression when someone's doing wrong. So when I was writing this piece or this book, my I believe my husband actually heard me talking about the book. And he said, that's the expression, Willie. That's, that is the title of your book. And he's wonderful for that anyway. What I really think about is, It's the essential truth of queerness, right? We can argue back and forth political ideologies, religious ideologies, whatever we want. The truth is, since the beginning of recorded history, we've been here and we will be here until the end of recorded history. And that truth is just as perfect as the truth that I have always been what I am. I will born it and I will die it. And there's nothing earthly, that is going to be able to remove that truth. It is, period. And that, that's how I conceptualize this stuff. There's a candle company called Bloom Candles run by a guy named Alex Halsey, who is gay and Appalachian, and was one of the first people to get access to my book. But he read it because he wanted to transform the book into a candle. And... I was not on TikTok at the time, but I did go find his once I got it. And he goes, I hope I don't get in trouble. I'm not supposed to do this. But I just read a book and all of you gay Appalachian friends who are out there. And then he zooms in on this line. And he goes, the truth will stand when the world's on fire. It meant so much that he felt exactly what I needed him to feel, or I hoped he would feel.
1: Yeah. So great. Let's talk about those poems because... I felt a lot of feels when I read your book, which isn't available yet, but everybody after this is going to want to put in a pre-order for this book when it comes out. Your poems speak to and for the children of Appalachia in beautiful and profound ways. I was so moved over and over again by this book. It also speaks to the power that teachers wield for good or ill in their classroom. So I think for the next portion of our time together, it'd be great if you could read some poems and then we could talk about them as lenses on the current time that teachers and students are facing.
2: So Good on.
1: I don't know if you want to pick or you want me to pick.
2: I would love for you to. Thank you so um, much.
1: Sure. I have a longer list, but I've narrowed it down. So <laughs> I thought, could we start with thank you, Jerry
2: Springer? Thank you, Jerry Springer. Yes. Robert Guy, who is one of my favorite authors, did a blurb for my book. He actually did a series of blurbs because he's one of the kindest human beings I've ever met. And one of them said something along the lines of, finally, Pop Pockets, Neckbones, and Jerry Springer have found their bard.
1: (laughs) And biscuits.
2: (laughs) I need a biscuit recipe on my website, and I think they're right. Thank you, Jerry Springer. I didn't hear the word gay in class. I didn't hear the word gay in books. I didn't hear the word gay in songs. I didn't hear the word gay in kids' shows. I didn't hear the word gay in church. I did hear the word gay in church, but only when they talked about monsters. I didn't always feel like a monster, although I accepted that it must be true. Our church used to pass out cartoon pamphlets. And in the special one about homosexuals, an ugly gay man had horns growing from his forehead and demons slithering up and down his back. I used to close my eyes and feel the invisible horns and trap the crawling demons tethered to my soul by lying down quickly. I tried to imagine a future living in cities big enough have grocery stores and homes for monsters like me, since even monsters with horns on their souls had to eat and sleep. Though I tied those thoughts up in a bag and swallowed them and once scribbled them in the thick graphic hieroglyphs of a nine-year-old on a drip of impatiently thin paper that I tore from the fragile dried leaf margins of our fourth grade weekly reader, Quietly casting the hastily scribbled, I am gay, into a fire in our backyard. The destructive acts and monster city imaginings only further confirming the evil that I had been told to believe about myself. My mom worked a late shift at a nursing home, and on special nights, she would arrive with snacks, chips, and pop from a gas station she passed on her way home from work. We would settle in on the couches amid folding hills of blankets like ethnographers hiding ourselves from an uncontacted group of pixelated humans. And against the noisy background crunch of Doritos and fizz escaping pop bottles like chemically dissolved spirits, the click of the television remote would deliver us to Jerry Springer. Jerry Springer was trash TV in the glory days when people thought TV was real cheating couples through chairs, men married their mothers-in-law, baby daddies got freed or tied down, their words, not mine, and one, the KKK even met with a black preacher. For a gay mountain kid with a couch's worth of gas station snacks, it was a precious time to safely judge other people in a world in which I was always on trial. My least favorite and most favorite and exciting and scary episodes that barged out of the screen and left me with a black eye were the gay ones. Sometimes a man would leave his sad wife slouched over, crying and broken, declaring his love for another man seated across the stage in a folding chair as they both drowned under the booze from the audience. And sometimes men dressed up as women and said they now felt free and happy while their wounded families wept and were washed clean by the oohs and ahs of the sympathetic audience. One time, a man told his straight best friend he was in love with him while the audience laughed and his friend got angry, but he didn't even throw a chair or run away. And in the small, empty space created by booed men willing to look at each other, by ridiculed men in dresses using words like happy and free, by men with angry friends who at least didn't even hit them or run away, I hoped against all odds to find some path to keep being alive.
1: You You can see people's faces. They're feeling all the feels. And this is just the tip of the iceberg, friends. When you think about that child you were, and you think about children in places where we are somehow finding ourselves going back to don't say gay. I don't know what's what do you hope this poem maybe takes out into the world?
2: Oh, I think there are a few audiences. I hope that for any kid lucky enough to see someone having felt something similar who is no longer small, who is no longer afraid, that maybe they can imagine a different path, that I can be something a little better than a man whose friend doesn't hit him for them. When I think about allies, I hope it gives them courage. It's going to take more courage to be a teacher who's an authentically kind person who does not do harm to children for the next few Mm -hmm. years ever been. And my biggest hope is that for someone who might not understand that this gives them a small piece of what it might feel like in ways that might edge them a little closer towards kindness.
1: Thanks. How about another poem?
2: Absolutely.
1: I had two that I feel like speak to a similar thing. One was clubhouse character and the other was library. Do you have a preference?
2: I think of the two, Clubhouse character. um, That's my first choice,
1: too. That's great.
2: In one of the video games that I played as a kid, there was a character who hid in a clubhouse, while the main character, a boy named Ness, saved the world. He said only 16 words in the entire game, and you could beat the game without even reading them. But if you found the hideout and you pressed B on the controller, the boy in a hat, who was built from 50 pixels, would say these words. You're so cool. I think I really like you. I pressed B on the controller every day that I could so that I could hear every sweet word said from one boy to another over and over again in order to have a reason to save the world. It's odd to imagine that 50 pixels in 16 words could lift an actual child so far into the air.
1: I've really been stealing myself for this day. (laughs) I'm like, I'm not going to cry. I am the host, but we'll see. I'm not doing a great job.
2: That game was called Earthbound. It's called Earthbound. That character I later learned is named Tony. And that's it. You can play the entire game and never see Tony. But if you happen to get into the space, Tony says these things. And It's because in Japan at the time where the video game originated, it wasn't a taboo in the way it is here. When we think about banning books and the effect it's going to have, or not saying gay. I remember the feeling. I remember the feeling of just going in. And it's silly, but you're, you're 14. I used to literally like walk my character into the clubhouse and just pretend that I was there with him. And I would just let the music from the game play and just sit there in my little pixelated form so that I could be somewhere else.
1: I too would say I had different lifelines that came from every time anybody even says bookmobile, I cry. I also had these lifelines as a kid that weren't sanctioned it just it just provided something that I needed and maybe I didn't know I needed before I saw it that nobody else knew I needed yeah I think the sense I think um there's the big picture of classrooms emptying of books but there's all of these tiny stories add yeah. up to what it means to feel like you have a place here and it's yeah.
2: Yeah. Thank
1: I appreciate you. you sharing this tiny story.
2: Thank you. I think about the student group I left behind and they actually wrote a grant. They got $4,000 to buy books. And what I think helped them win is that they made videos and they just talked about what why it mattered for them buying characters who look like them. I thought about, and they gave the answers I think we could anticipate, but I started noticing the students who were reading books as opposed to the ones who weren't. And those kids who are reading books, by and large, are students who needed somewhere else to be. Books are such magical ways to do that, because unlike other art forms, humans understand the world through story. And stories are mostly, I won't say mostly told through words, but they're told through words. And we understand the world through language. And so when you're reading a book, your language is being used for the book. You are experiencing it and you're feeling things in deep ways that I think are unlike other forms. The school rejected all of their books. Uh, We're going to get them to them. I found a local center that's going to house them and we're going to raise some money to get books to students who want them.
1: Goodness. Thank you, Willie. Thank you for your poem and thank you for having that club in the world. And thank you for helping Mm -hmm. them get around a roadblock when they encountered one. I wonder if you would like to read us another poem. I picked a guy named Casey.
2: I would love that. I love this poem so much. And it was there are the I think anytime anyone knows, they are gonna be writing a lot of things there are the poems that they are afraid to touch. One of the poems that I've been trying to write for a very long time, I actually couldn't even touch for this book. And it was another poet who gave me a way to do it, who said, imagine it's someone else. I'm trying to find the page that a guy can this <laughs> on. Uh, 59. Uh, this one, I just woke up one morning and had to write it. So... A guy named Casey, who I had never met. When I was in high school, I had a friend who had already graduated and she and her mother used to talk about a guy named Casey who was gay and had moved on to live in a bigger city. And though he was gay, they only ever said nice things about him. I saw something ugly, scribbled in the broken handwriting of the sort of broken person who writes ugly things on bathroom walls and gas stations. And it was written about Casey who I had never met. I scrubbed as hard as I could until his name faded away from a bathroom in a town that he had fled and sat in my used car and cried for a guy named Casey who I had never met. 30 years later, I heard a man named Casey introduce himself. His voice held the round quicksand vowels and smoky tempo of the hills. And though we were three hours away from the blotted name and a gas station, I knew it was him. I asked if he was from that town, if he knew that long graduated friend and her mother. Casey said, yes, So I told him how much his ghost had mattered to me. Since though gay and a ghost, he had left an echo of being loved that gave me hope. And I told him how I erased his name from a bathroom in a gas station. He hugged me tight like we were old friends. And we both cried, even though we had never met. And he asked me if I was okay. I told him yes.
1: Willie, really, this poem to me speaks to the ability or inability of people in certain communities to build a community of their own or to feel seen and safe. And I think that a lot of your poems come from a place in a moment and speak to a current place in a moment. And I wonder, again, maybe what you would want to say to a younger you or to Casey or the young people in rural places who feel like they have maybe just a tenuous connection to someone like a ghost of a guy you've never met.
2: I think Kentucky just passed its anti-LGBTQ bill yesterday. It's the worst in the nation and it will likely ban all LGBTQ clubs in K through 12 and will make it incredibly hard for community building to happen. And What I would tell any young person is that there's so much more than those moments in school where you're unable to form connections that you can't possibly begin to fathom it. You can't possibly begin to fathom the goodness because school is an artificial construct. It is a pretend thing that we have made up. And there's some good that comes from that pretend thing, and there's some bad that comes from that pretend thing, but it's not real. The reality of your life and the reality of your truth and your essence, those things can't be contained or shut up by a school. And you're going to find your tribe. My Lord, you're going to find your tribe. I think in some way, in many ways, actually, I am more connected to other people as an LGBTQ person than most of my friends who are straight are. Which is not to say that it's impossible for them, but we we have a bond, like Casey and I did, that meant even if we had just met each other, we knew each other's story. And that instantly made us friends. I think about Alex, who made the candle. I met him one night, and now we're venturing off into candle making together and going to rallies together and hugging each other and crying together because we're instantly friends. So you're going to find those people and your school is not the only place where people are experiencing this. You're gonna be able to share with people across the country and world, frankly.
1: That is a great message. It makes me question my next choice. Do you wanna read, I'm sorry, Chris?
2: Yeah. Okay. I do, and I think we've gotta face, it's important to face all of it, right? I'm sure that it must be a roller coaster for anyone to read this because the reality is that the day after they passed the anti-LGBTQ bill, I'm also speaking in Western and meeting lovely students, right? The reality is that there's joy on the worst days. There's pain on the joyful days. This is called I'm Sorry, Chris. I was hiding in the counselor's office. Plastic green ferns were photosynthesizing fluorescent-like bulb murmur and pointing at the unashamed brochures on self-esteem and pregnancy that kept the other students away. It was a space hidden by the refraction of an academic cement block mirage tucked away for ninth grade sissies and boys who played Dungeons and Dragons who didn't know where else to go to eat lunch. One of them said some boy Dropped a brick through the ceiling and onto your head, Chris, and that your angry, queer blood cried out to the Lord in undulant bursts like the raging howl of engines passing under the wheels of a rolling coal train as the medical workers carried you out to the ambulance. I'm sorry, Chris, that your courage was just too big to fit into that country school and that mine was too small, even to say hello to you, when you flitted by, like someone the ancient gods would have apostatized, your smile fuller than your fear, your lambent body on holy display, like a statue that you dared the unwashed to worship. You were the only boy in the history of the high school, sent home because his shorts were too short. I'm sorry, Chris, that when I got the nerve to ask you out junior year of college and we listened to Tori Amos bounce back off the bare shoulder of the hill, that I couldn't hear the exhausted wells drying out in your voice. Because even as you stood on the edge of a cliff, you made others want to live. I'm sorry, Chris, That whatever you consumed to soften your memories, prevented you from ever making new ones. And I'm sorry, that back when you were still alive and fighting for boys like me to live, I had only yet learned to hide. Thank you.
1: I told you I wouldn't. (laughs) I told you not to read that one, I'm just kidding. Thank you.
2: Thank you. I can tell you a funny story about what happened the night I went on that date with Chris. Do that. (laughs) that's a
1: little more
2: Um, he was a beautiful boy he was a beautiful man and he worked at he worked at taco bell i worked at papa john's and so i asked him out in the drive-thru he said yes and we listened to tori amos on the hill and it was really late at night chris lived with his uncle and he warned me like my uncle's a big bear cat of a redneck man so Let's try to be quiet. And my Pontiac didn't even have a muffler, so there was no being quiet. So (laughs) I drop him off at 2.30 in the morning, and I'm backing out of the driveway. And a hauler, if anyone hasn't been, is basically a mountain, and then a river, and then a very small road, and then a tiny little stretch of land that a house is on, and then a... So as I was backing, I backed straight off the road. My car went completely into this ravine, 90 degrees with the hood sticking straight up. And of course, I looked like an idiot in front of someone I was trying to impress. But then his big bear cat of an uncle had to get out at 2.30 in the morning and hook a chain <laughs> to my car and pull it out of a ravine. So that happened. <laughs> Not the best <laughs> thing to the first date.
1: As a rural person myself, though, that does sound like... <laughs> dates that I went on so I get that I can see that Mm -hmm. Um, Willie there's so much in your book and I want everybody to go pre-order it and I want them to enjoy every second of it but our community of practice as our teachers who are feeling a lot of stress and a lot of pain and a lot of Desire to do more and wondering how to do more with less and how to do more under such restrictive conditions. And so I thought maybe there are a lot of poems in your book that celebrate these small moves that teachers make that are a lifeline to kids for Mm -hmm. any number of reasons. Um, I picked three of them, out, and I would love if we could maybe end this portion of the show by just sharing one poem that really celebrates a teacher who did the right small thing in the right moment. Mm -hmm. So I picked out scientist or charisma or trombone. Trombone happens to be my favorite, but any of them are great. I also, I guess I also love charisma. Maybe I just love them all. So you pick, but if we could do a teacher's poem to close Mm -hmm. out this portion, that would be awesome.
2: Sure. You don't want to pick the How about if I narrow it down to either trombone or the other one about the dinosaurs (laughs) for some reason?
1: (laughs) Is that the one you want? Is that called scientist?
2: Yeah, let's go for scientist. Um, I have to say, as I'm opening this, when I did not think I was getting uh, Kentucky Teacher of the Year, I didn't know how the process worked. In fact, the reason that even exists is I got a message that I have been nominated. I was laughing about it and I'm, I feel guilty about it now, but I was laughing about it in front of my students. Oh, can you believe that? Yeah, I'm going to get the future of the year. Cause my students were fully aware, well aware of the fact that the administration did not like me and I'm trying to find the page that scientists is on. They were well aware of the fact that I wasn't liked. And then one of my students said, Oh, like they would ever pick a gay Appalachian. This student <laughs> happened to be a queer Appalachian. Now I have to do it. Now I have to do it. So I let them write the letters of recommendation. I was like, I'm not asking anyone else. I want the kids' voices. I talked about what they were doing. Anyway, when I when I got it, the first thing that popped into my mind was to start thanking every teacher I'd ever had. And so I went from mm-hmm. fourth grade all the way through high school. I'm still trying to find this <laughs> DC page for scientists. Okay, 69. Yeah. And the teacher that this is about, my first instinct was not to call my parents or anyone else. It was to call her, tell her what had happened. Scientist. Mrs. White told us we were all scientists, even though we were only in fourth grade. And since she brought us gifts all the way from New York when she went there for a conference in September, just like she said she would. We all knew that she was telling the truth. was lucky that I was a scientist because I tripped on the glossy ridge of a smiling dinosaur fossil, hiding its face just under the velvety onyx peat all by itself in a field where woolen cattails gossiped and hushed over the brooding floodplain just beyond our trailer. I already knew how to use a phone book. So I slid my finger down the names that began with W until I landed on Virginia White. When she picked up, I told her that we had to move fast since it was large enough to be a dinosaur skull. How exciting. Bring it in. For two days, Mrs. Virginia White let me clean and brush the grin on the gray calcified skull. Stared at me from the dark and dented empty eye sockets that waited for me to tell my ossified discovery who he was. We scored poster board and metric measurements and photographed him like a scientific centerfold laid out on an upside down plastic tablecloth that a caterpillar eyebrowed lunch lady was willing to give me. But only this one time <laughs> We planted our prehistoric Polaroids into a manila envelope that bore the address of a professor of science who worked at a university that was still in Kentucky, but so far away, I didn't know how to get there. For weeks, I learned via rock cycle worksheets while a dinosaur watched me with one eye smirking from the classroom bookshelf. Until Mrs. White shared with me a letter addressed to Mr. Willie Carver, esteemed fourth grade associate. The scientists bragged that because of the careful cleaning and pristine cranial polishing and meticulous measuring in well delineated centimeters of my found specimen, he could ascertain almost immediately the identity of a skull belonging to a horse. He included several printed pictures of a horse in skeletal form, its neck surprisingly with its serpentine stretch, its legs angular cylinders that finish flat like walking sticks, and its head all too familiar, flat with cavernous eyes, and an otherworldly foothill-curved mandible that smiled because it knew things about you it was not yet willing to tell. It would have been upsetting but it's hard to be dejected when a scientist has taken the time to write you a letter and call you his associate. Mrs. White smiled so wide at me that her mouth pulled her skin tight around her mandible, creating an orbital path between it and her joy pinched eyes around the exact point where her glasses rested on her nose. I asked her if she knew all along that it was a horse. What I knew all along he said is that you are a scientist.
1: I do love that one.
2: <laughs> wow.
1: oh, oh, thank you so much, Willie. Really. Your poetry and your stories and conversation have opened up a lot of things for us to think and talk about. But before we go to questions, I'd like to address you as an activist can you please tell us about the activist work that you are doing right now in order to make the world safer for teachers and rural LGBTQ youth? What organizations or work should we all know about?
2: The Kentucky Youth Law Project, KYLP.org. I'm a board member there. We offer free legal help to any LGBTQ youth under the age of 25, but we certainly aren't stopping there if someone needs our help. The Rainbow Youth Coalition... I'm not on their board, but I certainly uh, collaborate with them as much as possible. They are a fantastic group that is anywhere kids who are LGBTQ need help. Kentucky Fairness Coalition, which I think is fairness.org, is also doing all of the behind the scenes work on the legal front to try to help kids. So any of those are wonderful. And I am just my, my version of my vision of advocacy is literally using your voice to help. And for me, using your voice to help means standing with someone and believing that someone will hear you and that they will do something. So advocacy is really about faith in our fellow man. So that is what my year has been. It has been reaching out to anyone and everyone I can. And so far, they all answer. So that's what I would ask anyone else to do as well. When you see the need, don't think it's too big to reach out to an organization and ask for $50,000 because I just did that and it probably is going to happen. Please... Anything that you can. I would also love to mention the for our shared future. They are starting an educator defense fund. So specifically for any teachers who are here, that will be a one-stop hotline that opens up in the fall. The educator defense fund is going to be a number that you call if you are being attacked by your community. And they're backed by tens of millions. And the idea is that they will get you whatever you need, because we don't really have a resource for this for teachers. So these can be things like helping connect you to legal help. This can be things like scrubbing your name and address from the Internet. Evidently, that can be done, but it's expensive. So they're a great organization to work with and to just spread knowledge.
1: Thanks. Well, I know that. We are at the top of the hour, so I don't know how you feel about a couple minutes of questions. If you don't have time, that's certainly fair for you to say, but if you do, maybe we could take one or two questions.
2: Absolutely. It will be an honor.
1: I'm going to read a message from the chat while you decide if you want to ask a question, but that will be your last chance, so be brave, folks. Deanna Maskely, who, if you don't know, is a Kentucky Writing Project Director at Writing Project, an amazing writing community builder. After this, she is hosting an opportunity for people to write in response to these messages and poems. And the link to join the after party of this meeting is in the chat right now. But before y'all roll off for that, is there anybody who'd like to ask Willie a question?
0: Oh, and my other claim to fame is that my son is an alumni of Willie Carper's classroom.
2: Certainly is. He's a wonderful <laughs> kid, great writer, and a bit ornery. <laughs> At least he was, I'm guaranteeing you he's growing into adulthood, <laughs> but I love that kid. I think
1: I'm probably a bit ornery, so there's nothing wrong with
2: that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm absolutely ornery, so that is not a <laughs> <movie>. <laughs> All right. I have the a quick one.
1: question. Go ahead. If I, I may. Great. Of course you may. Uh, first of all, I would love to know what grades you've taught. And also, do you think there is a greater fear in being heard or in not being heard?
2: That is such a beautiful question that I think lets us explore what's happening right now. So the first thing is I taught I've taught middle school French through twelfth grade French. I taught in France. I taught English there. That was also middle school through high school. In Kentucky, I've taught English and French from ninth grade through 12th grade, and I have taught some college courses as well. I personally think the biggest fear is not being heard. When we look at what's happening right now, there's, Kentucky's a great example. Kentucky's supposedly a red state, but seventy per, 71% of people, according to a Mason-Dixon poll, opposed this new piece of legislation. And lots of really good people were not messaging about the needs of LGBTQ kids during this time, who I know wanted to. And the Kentucky Commissioner of Education, Jason Glass, is one of the best human beings who exists. And I don't say that lightly. He's going to host an LGBTQ summit in response to this to bring joy to kids. And when he made that announcement, immediately lots of groups started making their similar announcements. Because I think they were afraid that if they made the announcement, it would just be in the void. But when they saw him be heard, they followed suit. This is my theory about the universe. If we're standing at, most people are good. Even the bad people are good. So if people see you standing in front of a door and they know that you want to walk through it, I think they want to help you. But it's hard to get over that fear because it's based on our sense of self-worth that people don't want to hear us or that people won't listen. And so we end up letting our feelings of inadequacy prevent us from helping other people. So loving yourself is really the key to advocacy.
1: Thank you for that beautiful question, Nancy, and thanks, Willie, for making the most of it.
0: Thank you. I don't want to delay the time that everyone has to go over and write together, folks at Warhead, but Willie, I really want to thank you, how profound, what a profound amount of time we were able to have together. And I think this, I think there are lots of folks in the writing project who may be in circumstances that feel less threatening that don't really understand how they can help, how they can be allies, and I hear from a lot of people who are, almost feel guilty that you know they're not struggling with some of these things, and I think you've given so many windows into what we can all do to share and spark courage and support people and Whether, in fact, we are in those circumstances or whether we are in another place uh, Mm -hmm. where at this particular moment we don't feel that. And so I'm really excited to be able to share that and to share this with so many folks who are really deeply asking that question and also thinking about all the young people and what it means for them to hear that their teachers see them, to learn Mm -hmm. that their teachers see them and love them see them and love them both. Everything that you write carries that message. It's so deep and profound. It's so simple. It's so simple, but it's so deep too. So thank Thank you you. so much.
2: Thank you for those kind words and thank you for inviting me and helping spread this. I think you're doing exactly that for people who find themselves in better circumstances. What we have right now is an attempt to redraw the line. And the more that you who are in the good places or better places maybe better. are making <laughs> the more you're making it clear where you stand, the clearer you are being, the better. Another thing that I would say is keep the ego in check sometimes. And I'm not the ego in terms of we, we make it about us without realizing it and not in the way that you might think I had a, uh, we had a teacher who was getting death threats and I was in a group that was doing so much work to help. They actually raised money to build a bulletin board I'm sorry, a billboard in town, in this very small Kentucky town, and, and, uh, re- to, to respond to what was happening. But the news wanted to do a story. And all of these allies were like, oh, we think this should be a queer voice. We think, And I'm like, no, we actually, it's much easier for you to talk. Please talk. So if you have this feeling like maybe I shouldn't, maybe this is their fight, please make the mistake. If you make a mistake, the worst case scenario, you made a mistake. Right. But if you didn't make a mistake, then you've helped a lot of people. So be willing to make those mistakes for us, please. And thank you all.
1: Thank you, thank you, Willie. Before we let you go, could you just remind people your book is called "Gay Poems for Red States." It's coming; it will be available soon. Correct. Mm-hmm. The- and can you tell people June sixth and where and how should they? Look for it. Can, they it? You can get
2: it on, on the university Pre- at the University Press of Kentucky's website. Gay poems for red states. It's available on any other national book seller online. Of course, you can also call your local bookstore and ask them to get this and other queer Appalachian books. Let them know that there's a big admirer of queer Appalachian lit in your town. Support all of us. No need to feel like you need to go to any place specific. Excellent.
1: Okay. I can say goodnight or I can give you the last word and you could read reassurance.
2: It's up to you. I'd happily read reassurance.
1: Um, Great place for us to end. Okay.
2: Reassurance. It is important to remember, especially you're not the same as everyone else, that you can be thankful and want things to be better at the same time.
1: Thank you. Thank you, everyone. I hope you have a great night. And if you're going over to Deanna, grab that link out of the chat and go have a little writing time. I'm going to close us out here and say good night. And we'll see you again soon. And Willie Carver, you are amazing. And we are so thankful to have had you as our guest.
2: Thank you all. Thank you. Really. Thanks, everyone who came
0: out. Good night, everyone. A production of the National Writing Project. Yeah. NWP.
2: I'm right.